do it. We are in part 17 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled today's message On a Mission, and I want to begin with a couple thoughts to get us started. Uh, what if we sent out an ambassador on behalf of the United States to any given country? Let's say we're going to send them out to Egypt. They go out to Egypt, they settle down, they buy a home, all that is totally normal, but then... We start hearing things that they are saying that aren't really in line with what we think. Then we find out they cut off communication with us. Then we find out they start using our authorities, the United States, for their own benefit. Then we know that they don't even seem to be focused at all on America. What would we say about that ambassador? We would probably describe them as unemployed, yes? They would, we would need to find another one because they have ceased to do what we've asked them to do. They are no longer an ambassador to the United States. Seems pretty clear in that scenario. However, what we find is that in the Bible, it says that we are ambassadors for the kingdom of God, that every believer is delegated with the authority and we are representatives of the kingdom. We are foreigner, foreigners with our real home in the presence of God in heaven that we are just passing through, that we are to be salt and light representatives of our God. Yet for many of us, we have cut off communication. We have tried to utilize the authority. We've tried to take all the benefits and then build our own kingdom. We are not interested in advancing the kingdom of God. And I would say then we cease to be ambassadors. We cease to fulfill the very reason why we are here. Something's wrong about that. Our glory time is later. The Bible says that there will come a day when every believer will be glorified. And what glorified means is that we will receive bodies that are free from sin, that we will have all our tears wiped away, that our sorrow will be gone, that we will now be renewed, we will be healed in all ways, and we will begin a new quality of life in the presence of God. It says that in that time we will hear things like, well done my good and faithful servant, here are your rewards, here are your blessings, come join in my rest, and that glorification is magnified, and then we begin to get a new name in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. However, right now we are working. We are not there yet. Right now we are displaced. Right now we are wandering here. Right now we are on orders from the Heavenly Father. Right now isn't the time for full credit. Right now isn't the time for receiving rewards. Right now is a time of purposefulness and work carrying out the will of the Father. The reason why this is so critical is because the passage we're about to study shows that Jesus is hyper-focused on carrying out the Father's will. And he sets an example for us that we are to be about the father's agenda following his priorities and allowing him to set the tone. We are to be obsessed with the concept of what is God saying, because it's the only thing that matters. It is the idea that we are not here for ourselves, that we are not here to build our kingdom. We are here to build his kingdom. Therefore, we must live on purpose. Not accidental, 
not selfish, on purpose for him. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, if you have one of those, is this. We are to be about the father's business. We are to be about the father's business. Now, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, cover this passage. And the reason why it seems intriguing to talk about it this week is because it sounds really similar to the passage last week. Because we are in a phase of our series where it's talking about Jesus rising in popularity, Jesus casting out demons, proclaiming the kingdom, and healing people. We are in that phase element where that's being highlighted in the gospels. And today we're going to have one after another after another, all different kinds of concepts bombing you. And so hopefully you'll get a chance to kind of listen in and maybe check out the notes later on that I'll put online, things like that. But it's a lot that's going to be flying at you. So I would hope and pray that we are able to minimize distractions and kind of zero in on what God might be saying today through his word. But we're going to kind of combine all those together and let's throw up the first passage on the screen and join in. It says this, and immediately Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon, Peter and Andrew with James and John. We are now zooming back two weeks in our series. Matt Bach just finished talking about a man that was demon-possessed in the synagogue, was healed by Jesus. The demon was cast out on the Sabbath day. This story follows immediately after that. So they begin their morning around 6 a.m., They go into synagogue on the Sabbath, they have their church service, and then they go to a Sabbath meal afterwards. So in the story, we're basically around noon. Let's say there was some controversy about casting out a demon in church. And let's say there was a little bit more dialogue that had to be had. Then we were at about 1 p.m. So Jesus got cracking at least around 6. It's now about 1 p.m. I can just tell you in a small way that as a pastor ministry is exhausting. It's exhausting when you teach a couple messages and you're communicating with everyone in the community hall and you're hearing needs and hurts. And if you're a shepherd by definition or by nature, what people say to you matters, right? I mean, if someone comes up and says that they have MS, you don't say, well, that is difficult for you. You say that is difficult for us. You embrace that, you own that, you feel that. That's just kind of how it works. And then I immediately, when I meet you, whatever your need is, I try to get into your mindset of how would that feel for me? Well, then you carry a little bit of that, even though you're supposed to hand it all over to Jesus. I don't know to what degree we're all good at that, but you carry a little bit of that around. Now, in addition to all that, Jesus does all kinds of intense uh, things. He's, he's doing much more healing of people, that kind of thing. So there's a lot that's taken out of Jesus. So he might well be exhausted. And his idea is just to get out of church, go kick back with his buddies, have lunch and chill out. But of course there's always ministry waiting for Jesus wherever he goes. And so that's what we find. It says this, Jesus arose, left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon, Peter, and Andrew. Now, Seems like everyone lives at Peter's house. Here's why. Okay, not only does his brother live there, right? Which already for some of you is irritating. 
we find out his mother-in-law is there. That means that he's married. So he has a wife and we need to realize that this whole time Peter has a wife. As a matter of fact, tradition says they did ministry all the way till they were martyred and they were martyred looking at each other. They were together in their death. So she's always around. Her mom is in the house and Jesus is on the couch. Jesus lives at Peter's house. That's their new home base. So everybody's at Peter's house. It's in a town called Capernaum. And it's probably because Peter had the biggest house. That's kind of why. Which goes to show you, never own a truck or people will ask you to move, right? You see what I'm saying? Have the smallest house. That way you always go over to their house. It's that kind of thing. Come on, people. Use your brains, right? So the idea was, is that it's possible Peter... And Andrew were maybe doing a little better financially than some of the other guys. We know that they were in a fishing business with James and John. So that's why those guys show up. They've been buddies for a while. They've been in uh, ministry and work together. They all left the fishing business together and went into ministry, all that, right? So the whole crew is now going to go over to Peter's house. What day is it? It's a Sabbath day. This is very important to remember. We are still connecting to the same exact day. The Sabbath day is critical to the Jewish people. And here's why. God gave 10 commandments. If I was only going to give you 10 rules total, I would make them all count, right? You don't just kind of ignore the first eight and maybe the last two are kind of important. You only got 10. Let's focus on them being critical. One of those 10 is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The Sabbath concept was designed out by God that he said, I'm going to rest on the seventh day. Now, does God really need to rest? No, of course he doesn't need to rest. What was he doing? He was role modeling for the kids. So he says, oh, look at me taking a nap, right? He's not really taking a nap. He's trying to get the kids to go to sleep. So he rests, enjoys things and enjoys his own presence. He said, this is what I would like you to do, kids. One day a week, they made it the first day of the week. He said, I want one day a week where I want you to chill out. I want you to replenish so that you don't blow out and become a workaholic. I need you to replenish. I need you to focus on me and I need you to just relax. Now, what's interesting is anytime God gives a command, people don't want to break that command. That's good. All that I'm about to say started with good motives and a good heart, but it got a little bit crazy. Here's why. Let's say in this church, God said, don't touch the stage or you'll die, right? First of all, I'd be dead, but that's not the point. (laughs) Roll with me on this one. How would we as leadership handle that? We would probably put barricades out back there. Why? Because maybe you and I are talking after service and your little three-year-old thinks the drum set's cool and runs up and touches the stage, right? Well, in the same way, when you have a serious command from God that is attached to blessings and curses, if you keep the Sabbath, you'll be blessed. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you'll be cursed. That's what he said in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. They then said, well, we don't want to do that ever. Let's back everybody up. And they started putting rules around the rules. Well, by the time it got around to Jesus' day, we had over 600 different rules and regulations about the law of God. They kept adding on and adding on and adding on just to try to back everybody up. So, for example, God says, don't do any work. I want you to chill out on the Sabbath. They ended up making it, you can't do anything on the Sabbath. It became a hassle. 
There was all types of things you could not do. As a matter of fact, it got so messed up that the rule came in, you can't heal on the Sabbath. Is that why you guys aren't healing more often? Because it's like, hey, dude, I totally heal you today, but uh, it's a Sabbath and everything, right? So I can't do that for you. I'm just chilling out. The other problem is not only could you not heal, you can't help anyone get better. Okay? So there are, like, you see a car accident. You can only keep them at status quo. You're not allowed, there wasn't a lot of car accidents in Jesus' day, but you know what I mean, right? Right? Like a horse accident. You, you could not help them get better, but you can help them not get worse. The only time that you can give them absolute medical attention is in a dire emergency. Is that really what God intended? No, of course not. It begins to get silly. We've slid way out of the way of what God wanted. This is one of the primary reasons why Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden with rules, and I will give you what? Rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That was kind of what he was trying to get back to. So Jesus kept breaking the Sabbath stuff by healing people on the Sabbath and doing things like that. We're on that same day. So he has already violated one thing by healing a guy from a demon possession on the Sabbath. Now he's going to go home for a meal. Now, one other thing before we move on. This series is called Being Jesus. And I'm going to kind of beat a dead horse on this thing by going, got to be like Jesus, got to be like Jesus, got to be like Jesus, right? All the time. But I need to clarify something. There's a caveat. I need you to be like Jesus in context. And the reason why that's important is you're about to see that Jesus had a pretty extreme lifestyle and ministry. You go, well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The more out of balance, the more Christian you are. Okay, I'm talking to you people, by the way. Because here's why. You'll see Jesus ministers, gets exhausted, but then keeps ministering. And then he's exhausted again and he keeps ministering. We see him sweating great drops of blood. We see all kinds of stuff. Is that what you are to role model? Well, yes, if you only plan on living for three years. Okay, Jesus in context. Jesus was not interested in a 20-year-long ministry, 30-year-long ministry. He was going to come, hit it hard, three years, and then what was his point? Die. All right, so if your point is to do three years of ministry and die, do exactly that. I have no problem with that. Just be Jesus in context. Jesus would have operated different had he had a different calling from the Father. So our job is to say, what would Jesus do if he was in my context? That is where we put in balance. Jesus puts in some healthy boundaries, but ultimately he knows it's a very short window and then he's going to die. We need to operate as if we are going to live and be more of a marathon than just a sprint. So we need to have certain boundaries and healthy elements in our life. All right. Okay, let's move on. It says now Simon's mother-in-law, there she is. And if she's mentioned without the dad, that usually means he's dead. So it is likely that she's caring for being cared for. And it says that she had a problem. What's that problem? She lay ill with a high fever. Now, this is not mama had the sniffles. One gospel said that it was a high fever. What gospel was that? Luke. What does Luke do for a living? He's a doctor. If anyone knows what a high fever is, it's the doctor. And he highlights out 
this is not the sniffles. This is like malaria serious. This is like going to die serious. All right. So he puts that in there and immediately they appealed to Jesus on her behalf. What does that mean? It means they drew his attention. Hey, mom's sick. Before we even get started with a whole meal, can you come take a look at her? She's not doing well. The reason why I'm clarifying that is because some of us have the prayer lives of the prophets of Baal. Here's what I mean. Y'all remember the story? I've said it like a billion times. Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, goes up against the 450 prophets of Baal. They set up two sacrifices on the top of Mount Carmel. Elijah says, whatever God responds by fire, that God we will serve. And so he lets the Baal worshipers go first. How did they pray to their God? They cried out, they screamed, they begged, they yelled, they cut themselves to try to look like they were in massive need. They went to the extreme, they were bargaining, all these different things. How did Elijah pray? Very clear this. Father, you know what the need is. You're the one that set this whole thing up. Would you demonstrate that you are God? Bam! Out of the sky, fire comes, burns everything up. We don't tend to pray like Elijah. We tend to pray like the prophets of Baal. How many times have you ever been in a prayer situation where you start making deals with God? Right? You know what I'm talking about? God, if you do this for me, I will. God, if you do this, I will do this. God, I will never do this again if you allow this to happen. God, please hear me. We're begging out. That's not the God we serve. He does not need to be roused. He does not need... Now, there's nothing wrong with spiritual warfare, striving prayer, fighting in prayer, all that stuff. All that's good. Just make sure who you're talking to and how you're talking to them. Let's be very clear that we're allowed to be passionate in our prayer, but we're not trying to get God's attention because we already have his attention. His eyes are attentive to the saints, it says. He's already watching. He already knows the scenario. You don't have to completely catch him up to speed, right? He's pretty much up to speed and he's way ahead of you. So when we pray, let's pray with that in mind. Notice that they appealed to him on her behalf, but they weren't begging him going, man, seriously, before you sit down and eat, I know you don't want to do this, but I really need you to help mom out. All they had to do was point out what was going on. She is a wonderful woman. I need you to come touch her, please. And Jesus said, right on, let's go. So sure enough, his day is not done, right? He still has more things to do. And he came and he stood over her, either for proximity or to demonstrate authority. I don't know. And he touched her hand. Now, is that important? It's important for two reasons. Number one, he didn't have to. We've already covered that in this series, right? Jesus can heal with a thought. Jesus can heal with a word. So anytime he does anything other than that, we have another layer of healing going on. Why is he touching her hand? Well, that comes to number two. Rabbis don't touch women. This one does. So once again, you're seeing all these things being broken through. That Jesus is going, don't tell me which one of my daughters I'm allowed to touch and not touch. Do not tell me I'm not allowed to give a hug. Do not tell me I have to back up from my people. I will do what I need to do when I need to do it. That is who I love. That is who I'm dying for. So don't give me this whole, oh, you got to back up, rabbi, all these paces. No, I don't. I will touch her when I want. So he breaks that right there. And it says this, 
And he rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately he took her by the hand and lifted her up, totally confident in her full healing. She rose and began to serve them and him. Do you see how I wrote them and then slash him? You go, well, him is implied in them. Yeah, but there's something deeper in my opinion. She served them practically. She served him proverbially. Why? Because anytime you serve them, you're serving him. You understand? So our job, when we serve one another, we are actually serving the king. Therefore, I wanted to highlight that. When she got healed, what did she immediately do? She served. Why? Because we are healed that we might be with God. We are not healed that we might feel better going away from God. You know what I mean? We have all been saved and restored that have been saved and restored, right? So that we might be with God, not so you can just feel great and go live apart from God. Your job in being healed was not so you can go build your kingdom more. It was the idea of connection. It was the idea of now let's go do something. If there is any level of healing in any way, shape or form, that is God saying, let's go on an adventure together. It is not, hey, that's good for you, kid. Why don't you go do your own thing? That's not what it's about. But we passed something that is rather critical, and we kind of jumped right over it. What does it say that he did to the fever? He rebuked the fever. Do you know what rebuke means? It's actually used all over the Bible. And this word that is used in Greek is never used for anything other than rebuke. He rebuked the fever. Well, that's weird. A fever is an inanimate. There's no personality behind it. Why are you? That's like rebuking a chair. Why would you rebuke the chair? I can't believe your legs, you only have four. Well, I mean, what are, you, what are you supposed to say to a chair? I don't know how to insult a chair, but anyway. When people were trying to get their babies to be touched by Jesus, they were trying to crowd around and interrupt ministry, right? I put that in quotes because, of course, that was still ministry. The disciples rebuked the people. What did they say? We're not doing that right now. We're changing your agenda. Shut it down. You're done here. That's what a rebuke is. When Jesus rebuked Peter for saying, don't go to the cross, he said, get behind me, Satan. We're not doing that. Change the agenda. Shut it down. That's what a rebuke means, right? So what in the world are you doing talking to a fever and telling it to, we have a different agenda, shut it down? Why are you talking to a fever? That's weird. Now, it'd be one thing if that's the only thing he rebuked, because we would probably go, oh, there was a demon there. That's why he rebuked it. No, we're going to find out the Bible's very clear in separating out what is demonic and what is not. Whenever a demon is fixed, it's cast out and it's always mentioned. When a sickness is healed, that is just healed. So the Bible separates them, and we'll talk about that in a second. So he rebukes a fever. It's not demonic. But he also rebukes other inanimate stuff. Listen to this. I'm going to read you a combo account of the day that Jesus calmed the storm. Just listen. It says this. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Jesus said, let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. He got into the boat and his disciples followed him. So they set out and other boats were with him. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And behold, there arose a great windstorm which came down on the lake and sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves which were breaking into the boat and they were filling with water and were in danger. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. 
They went and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Save us, Lord. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rose and rebuked the winds and said to the sea and the raging waves, Peace, be still. And they ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? Where is your faith? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? What sort of man is this? That he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. Got it? All right. Weird? Yes. He's talking to inanimate things. There was no demon in the wind. There was no demon in the water. So what was Jesus talking to? Who was he saying, peace be still to? Why was he speaking to it like a rock? Because what we find out is he was doing exactly what he has always done in creation. And here's why. When there was nothing, God made reality to be by what? A word. He spoke reality into being and he fashioned and formed that which was not into that which was. So the Bible also says that everything that has been seen was created by Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus. He is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? We know that. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And as he created, he shaped by his voice. He altered reality with a word. Any miracle Jesus ever did, he's employing the exact same concept. He spoke to the bread, he thought to the bread, and began to multiply out the bread. Now, he gave thanks and began to separate it. Now, bread is inanimate, but he was shaping reality and bending it to his will. Because that's what authority he has. God can do anything. Jesus Christ can operate and say that, 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 and it all works, right? Okay. Well, what's fascinating about all of that is that he transfers the authority to his followers. That's the ambassador concept. That's the representative concept. That's the delegation concept. He says, and we'll study this later and get into it in a later session. He says to his disciples, I give you all authority to do this, 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 and this, right? I want you to go heal. I want you to go cast demons. I want you to do proclaim the kingdom. And I want you to sign my name to the checks because that's me doing it. It's not you doing it. It's me doing it. I just need you as my ambassador to go call it. Just like an ambassador uses the authority of the United States, not speaking on their own. In the same way, that's what the followers were to do. All right. Now, as you see this kind of echo out, you also see Jesus say phrases like this. If you had faith as a mustard seed, you would what? Tell the mountain to be uprooted and go into the sea. This explains why in the Bible there are two common types of prayer. There is request prayer and there is command prayer. In the book of Acts, if you look at all the miracles, there is majority command prayers. And they look like this. Paul says, he sees a guy that looks like he can be healed. And he goes, get up. Stand up on your feet, you're healed. There was no, hey, Father, would you heal this guy so I can... It was just straight out, get up. Peter and John walk into the temple. They see a man, silver or gold, I do not have. Get up. It's, there's no request involved. It's all command. Why would they do that? Because that's weird. 
Are they telling God what to do? No, let me be very clear on something. There, have you ever heard anybody pray like this, pray in a command way? I do. Now, not all the time, but there's some prayers that I do. I, I pray commands and I pray requests. I pray more requests than commands, but it still happens. Now, it trips people out. They're like, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing? Listen, you never tell God what to do. There's no way that's appropriate or allowed. The whole point is you are saying, Dad, you have just as Adam and Eve given authority to manage the garden on your behalf. I'm just trying to exercise your authority. Is that okay with you? It's always submitting. It's always underneath the Lord. It's always his way. It's always his will, not our will, right? So it's never appropriate to tell God what to do. But there is a degree to where Jesus said, hey, kids, I'm actually, I need you to go ahead and go out on my behalf. He said that to the disciples. It's a fascinating concept. Anyway, how it all works out, we'll get into that at a later time. We move on. It says this. Now that evening, the same day, this is a long day. Now that evening, the same day when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases or oppressed by demons brought them, that phrase in Greek means kept carrying them to him. A couple interesting pieces. Why did everyone wait till evening to come bring him to Jesus? Well, because of the silly Sabbath rules. You can't carry anyone and they didn't have wheelchairs. That would have been work anyway because they were wheeling their own chairs. Do you understand this is absurd? So everyone had to wait till evening when Sabbath was over then they could carry their friends to Jesus. Then they could go get healed because then he was allowed to do it. So once evening came, everybody starts pouring out and they swamp around Peter's house. Now, what's intriguing about this is this is where you see the Bible is very clear that it separates disease from demonic. That's a big deal. Why? Because some people think every disease or every trouble or every trial or every problem is a demon. Man, you got a demon. What do you mean I got a demon? Because now not only am I sick, but you're freaking me out. Okay? Because I was fine. I had one issue. Now I got two issues. Right? You're one of my issues. So the deal is, let's be very careful because not everything is attached. Now here's where it gets messy. Demons sometimes utilize disease. And so, for example, Jesus cast a demon out of a little boy, and the symptoms were these. He falls on the ground, rolls around, and foams at the mouth. What does that sound like? Epilepsy. It's a seizure. It's a grand mal seizure. Is all epilepsy tied to demons? No. The Bible is clear that there were demons. Oh, and then there was epilepsy healed, meaning they're distinct categories. But because demons are mean, because demons are bad guys... They grab and make things worse and exacerbate problems and symptoms. So are they jumping in on it? Of course they are. Why wouldn't they? But let's be very clear. Although all problems are a result of sin, right? I mean, Adam and Eve, we screwed up. Oh, look, everything fell into problems. Now we're all dying from various things. I get it's all tied to sin, but let's be very clear. Not all, because that's what the Bible teaches, not all sickness, disease, pain is related to the demonic in the present. Sometimes they're just separate stuff. And the reason why that's important is because Jesus deals with them different. He casts demons, but he'll heal sickness. Cast demons, 
heal sickness. You don't just heal the demon. And then the demon's like, oh, I feel better. (laughs) You don't want that. Get it out. And then it always highlights that it got out. Okay? All right, we keep moving forward. So far, three of you are with me. Praise God. (laughs) Uh, Next passage. And the whole city, that's proverbially, was gathered together at the door of Peter's house. Why? Because they all can't fit in. So they have a big front porch ministry. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed all who were sick. Okay, two interesting things here. One, it's very rare where Jesus does a clean sweep and heals all of them. This is one of those rare times. How long does it take to heal all of them? I have no idea, but that's a long day. Notice that Jesus was exhausted before we even got started. Here he is doing more and more and more ministry. He heals them all. What does all mean in Greek? All, praise the Lord. (laughs) Therefore, he heals all the sickness. He clears everything out. He stays there till the last one is healed. That's awesome. Now, we know also the other fascinating thing about this statement is that he just, we studied last week, he just healed 10 lepers at a time. He just was like, boom, mass healing. These, he touches every single one of them. He laid hands on them and healed them individually. Why would he do that? Well, I don't know. Let me ask you this. Let's say I stand up here and I go, all right, everybody that has back pain be healed. In the name of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, sweet, right? Everyone, yay. Then everyone's like, oh, there was God fairy dust in the room, right? Or whatever it is. Okay? Then what if it's, hey, Rick, come here for a second. What's going on with your back, man? And it comes up, looks me in the eye. And he says, man, it's just been echoing all the way down through my legs and everything. It's been terrible. It's in my lower back. I'm sorry to hear that. That's, that's really, really rough. I'm very sorry. Do you mind if I lay hands on you? Well, yeah, sure. All right. Father, you know what the need is. Would you touch my friend Rick? In Jesus' name we pray. What's the difference between those two scenarios? One, you feel heard and you feel loved. You understand what I'm saying? Is now I'm looking you in the eye. It's the same way what Jesus did. It's the same thing that Jesus could have just said, boom, you're all good. Go home. He didn't. He said, Betty, are you okay? No, Lord, I'm not okay. What is he doing? He slows down his whole world, looks her right in the eye and says, I see your pain. Betty, can I lay my hands on you? Yes, Lord, that's why I'm here. All right, let's cry together. It's been really rough for you. You okay now? Here we go. Here we go. Father, you know our need. Be healed. Thank you, Lord. Do you understand multi-levels of healing going on there? He saw me. He cares about me. He wants to know my heart. He does see my pain. He understands where I'm at. But he's also the great king that healed me. That's awesome. You know what I'm talking about? All right, pretty cool. It says, next passage, And they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits. By the way, I'm getting chills just talking about this stuff. This is awesome. This is really great stuff. I don't know if you're into this, but I think it's awesome. Praise the Lord. All right, let's keep going. And they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word. That's called authority. And demons. Demons and spirits, same thing. They came out of many crying, you are the son of God, right? They're just trying to be rude on their way out. They're just trying to frustrate. 
but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. Why? That's not their role. Because they knew that he was the Messiah. They knew who he was. Israel didn't know who he was, but they knew who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah 53, 4. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. All right. This is a tricky passage. Let me explain this for a second. There's a couple different New Testament authors that quote this, and they quote it differently. Peter quotes it, and right here we have a quote from the gospel authors. Here's what's fascinating about that. Isaiah originally wrote it, and it was written in Hebrew. When its context is examined, he's referring to the Messiah carrying upon his back in life... And in death, real sickness, real disease. Okay, are we all got that? That's how it was originally said. And that's what this gospel author is quoting. When another ancient group did a version of the Bible called the Septuagint, they did a Greek version of the entire Old Testament, and that's what most of the gospel authors were reading They spiritualized that word and said that the Messiah carried our sins. So the Hebrew says disease and sickness. The Septuagint says our sins. And so you find the gospel author uses the Hebrew and Peter uses the Septuagint. That's why this is a complicated passage. Why? Because some people make this say what it didn't necessarily say. But let me try to explain. Some people use the Peter passage, which says, uh, it says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. A lot of people use that and they go, well, see, it says in Peter By his wounds, we are healed of our sickness. Well, that's actually not what it says. It says we're healed of our sin. So let's be careful on context, right? Now, does God heal stuff? Yeah, the original Isaiah says that. Maybe a better passage to quote would be Psalm 103. You can pray this over somebody. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sin, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and it goes on. Notice it does not say everything gets fixed. It says he is the king that conquers all types. There's nothing that you have that he can't control. But the where we get mixed up is some people believe, and I understand they have a great heart. I understand why they believe it. Some people believe that because of these types of passages that everything should be healed. There should be no suffering in the world. I have a problem with that. I don't think that that's scriptural. I think that the Bible teaches a theology of suffering and a theology of healing. I think they're both at the same time. When is it each? God's will, right? That's the point. But some people will go, God never heals. I don't think that's right. Some people say God always heals. I don't think that's right. It all has to do with what is best for the glory of God, for his kingdom purposes, and for us. He will always blend those together and determine for his children what is right and what is good. So, all right, cool. Let's keep moving. It says this. And when it was day, meaning the following day, we finally got out of that Sabbath day. We're now on the next day. 
rising very early in the morning while it was still dark around 4 a.m jesus departed and went out to an uninhabited remote place and there he prayed is this important yeah it's critical jesus is awfully determined how long does it pray is it to pray for the whole town i think he probably got to bed late can we all agree on that yet he arises at 4 a.m why are you getting up at 4 a.m. when you had a late night, dude? Just sleep in. You're the son of God. <laughs> nope. Totally determined. Totally focused. 4 a.m. Eh, 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 eh. Stupid alarm, right? And boom, Jesus is up and he's going, right? He's already making coffee. He's gone, right? He's got his little travel mug and he's going. And he heads out. I don't know if that's how he did it. He went out to an uninhabited place, a remote place. Now, where was he going? He was going to connect with the Father. Why would he do that? Why does the Son of God need to connect with the Father? Because when he set aside the perks of his Godhead and took on humanity, he took on limitation. That means he needed downloads from the Father and restoration from the Father. You think he was exhausted? Yes. Where did he get his rest? The Father. I'm still learning how to do that. I don't know how to do that very well. Some of you are already advanced in that area. When you pray, you feel restored and rejuvenated. I know how to fight in prayer. I know how to strive in prayer. I know how to do warfare in prayer. I don't know how to rest in prayer. I'm still, I got something messed up with me, right? So I'm still trying to figure that one out. Jesus was totally connected to the Father that when he was wiped out, he'd go into prayer and his batteries were recharged. Like, man, I am locked and loaded. I'm ready to go. Dad told me what we're doing today. Let's do this. And that was an excitement for him. But he had to get away. You can only be much for God if you are much with God. You understand what I mean? Well, too many times we try to do ministry without the presence of God. And that's never going to work. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You only produce fruit when you are attached to the vine. Jesus was role modeling this for us. How important is a prayer life? Critical. How important is it to withdraw from people and just be alone with God? It's critical, right? These things are important. Some of us just think it's like an add-on. It's your lifeline. It's how Christians operate. So we got to grow in that area, right? And then it says this. And Simon, meaning Peter... And those who were with him searched for Jesus and they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. Two things you need to know. Number one, the phrase went out to look for him is went to hunt him down. (laughs) They're ticked off. The phrase everyone's looking for you is called irritation and agitation. That is, dude, what are you doing here? I mean, we get up, we're just like, oh, you know, it's 7 a.m. And we're like, oh, where's Jesus? Oh, look, the coffee pot's missing. All that kind of stuff, right? We get up and we're like, Jesus is gone. Everybody's asking about you. Man, everyone that got healed last night, they got up at the crack of dawn. They were out there grabbing their buddies. Now we got a whole new crew of people that need to be touched. We are having a killer ministry. I mean, I think there were donors in the crowd. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was. if we're going to do like a big Capernaum ministry, this is the place. This is the way to do it. This is our home base. Everybody's on board. It was awesome. And so you know what you're kind of ruining it. So if you could just hurry up and come home, let's get this done How do you think jesus reacted to that? Right now this time he was nice. He didn't call him satan. That was cool It says and they would have kept him from leaving them boy. They had their plans, right? But he said to them we got to go on I must preach the good news of the kingdom of god to the next towns as well for I was sent For this purpose. That's why I came out. 
And he went throughout all Galilee and Judea, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. What's the point? He moved on. He was not manipulated by the people. He was not tempted by the pride, tempted by the crowds, tempted by successful ministry. He was focused on the Father's will, and he set us an example. Hey, guys, I don't care how popular we are. That's not why I came. I didn't come here to get popular. I came here to do my Father's will. That is my job. And Dad said, we're moving on. So guess what? We're moving on. I don't care who it agitates. I don't care who it causes a problem with. I did not come to just sit in one location and make everybody feel better. I came here to save the world. And if I'm going to save the world, I'm going to proclaim that everywhere I go. So no, you're not going to shut me down. You're not going to try to convince me it's a better idea to stay around here. No, we are going, going, going. Let's move. Because we have a plan. And it's not our plan. Right? So I close with this, this concept. We are not here in this world as believers to gather all we can, milk life and discard it. We are here to bring life. We are here for the Father's will, the Father's agenda, the Father's priorities. A soldier doesn't get mixed up in civilian affairs. A foreigner passing through doesn't buy a home and settle down. An ambassador doesn't forget their home country. And neither does a Christian lock into the world system with a selfish mindset. Remember why we are here. Too many of us have it wrong. We're building the wrong kingdom. We're focused on the wrong things. We're all about amassing and peace, joy and luxury. We're all about what do I need to get done for my agenda. We're all about setting our planning system based on our wants. That's not Jesus. Jesus is every day connecting with the father and saying dad what do you want what do you want to do do you want to do this do you want to do that we'll do it i don't care what do we want to do whatever you want to do dad let's do that jesus was on a mission jesus lived purposeful it was not an accident that he saved the world it was a design in the same way he brought us here for purposes, right? He designed us and knit us together in our mother's womb that we might be rescued and saved, that we might go out and be his representatives on the earth. Amen. He called us that we might be healed and talk to other people about what it means to be restored to God. He called us that we might be the ones to bring life to say, I know where the Messiah is. I know who can touch you. I know what can take you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. I know the solution. And his name is Jesus Christ. This is why we are here. It is not here because of our 401k. It is, we are not here because of all the investments we have. It is not here to have the best car, the best house, and make other people feel stupid. Our job is not to be the smartest, wisest, everything else. Our job is to do the Father's will. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your beautiful walk with us through Scripture. We love you, Lord. We want you to be glorified, Father. We want our lives to be used. We want to be filled with your Holy Spirit that we might 
be empty jars filled with your presence going out and doing something that matters lord we want to build the kingdom we are not interested in making our own little silos we're not interested in amassing wealth for ourselves that doesn't help but god if all those blessings do come in and we're able to use them for the kingdom we love you we think it's awesome whatever you want to do dad that's what we're going to do today that's what we're going to do tomorrow talk to us share with us Tell us what you love, and we'll go do that. In your precious son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.